such a special Sunday for those of us that, that call this place home. And, and the staff knows about, about the child dedication way, way in advance, and so we're always anticipating it. But there's, there's this thrill that we have, and I know you as the church have as well, of seeing a bunch of parents up on stage with their children, like precious, precious children, and, and them saying, here's, here's the commitment of our heart and lives is for this young child to be raised in a fashion that they have such a chance to, to know the one that made them and, and follow the one that died and rose for them. And so when I uh, see the parents up here and kids up here, I think about the future of the church, and I see it on stage on days like today. And I think the future of the church is good. The future of the church is in good hands when I see days like today. So thank you, parents, and many family supporters. I know their grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends, and many of you have come as guests uh, just for these. And so we're th- so thankful to have you guys here as well. Let me pray for a moment, and then I'll walk into some teaching. Father, I pray that um, you will settle every heart and every mind with attentive anticipation that not that, not that I would speak, but that you would speak as only you can do. That wherever each person is at, that by your spirit, you would speak into their heart and mind and circumstances in a way that would be exactly what is needed. And then, so I ask, Father, that you would give me your words, give me clarity around your words, and give me your passion for those words. And, and may those words then be used by your Holy Spirit to make such a difference today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is week two of a series on the Holy Spirit. So many of you have not gotten week one. So I'm going to do a two-minute summary, if I can, and try to condense what I said in 30 minutes last week on this. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. We started by talking about how God, Scripture says clearly there's only one God. There's just one God. But in some mysterious way, there's one God, but He is three persons. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. And we spent some time around that and said, now we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit for seven weeks. And we said, first of all, we said the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not an energy. Uh, he, it is a He. It is a person. Uh, he, like he is a person. And... and uh, he has all the, the aspects of personality, uh, of mind and will and emotion and all those things. And we also said that, that the Holy Spirit has the fullness of God in him. If you want to know what the Holy Spirit is like, then you look at Jesus and you can see exactly what the Spirit is like. Because the Holy Spirit has the fullness of God, all of God's power, all of God's wisdom, all of God's knowledge, all of God's grace, all of his righteousness. Every characteristic that God has the Spirit has in full, as does the Son and as does the Father. And then we said there's this stunning deal that began about 2,000 years ago in that when someone trusts their life to Jesus, when someone says, please, Jesus, forgive me and lead me, then the Father and Son send the Holy Spirit to live within that person, to take up residence in that person's house, if you will, in, in some very real but some very uh, non-material, intangible way that's very, very real. And then we said, we began to talk a little bit about what the Holy Spirit, just to get the significance of what this means, of some of the work the Holy Spirit is doing around the world, the magnitude of the Spirit's work, and what the Holy Spirit's doing in the church, and then what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of a follower of Jesus as well. And so we got that far into it, and this is where I want to go with it today. I, I have this sense, while I covered, I covered uh, the truth that when someone trusts Jesus, the Spirit moves in. I covered that. I covered how important the Spirit is. I think I need to come back. And I've got two objectives today. They are that the objectives of certainty and significance. Certainty and significance. And I, I think it's so crucial that you would know, all of you that have trusted Jesus, 
that you know the Holy Spirit lives in you. If you've never known that before, if you've never sensed that before, if this is all new to you, that by the end of today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you would know the Spirit of God lives within you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, equally important that you would know if you ever become his follower, the Spirit would take up residence in you. If you become his follower today or tomorrow or next year or in a decade, that you would know the very Spirit of God would take up residence. He would move into your house. And then the significance of it, I want to, I want to cover that at some length as well, because, because if, if you don't know the Spirit's presence, if you're a follower, if you don't know what it means, then there's a good chance the next five weeks you might miss out on some of the details of how we, of how we lean into this life with the Holy Spirit. And so, so I'm going to spend time on the certainty and the significance of it. I would encourage you to take notes uh, if you um, have something to write on. Uh, this is so important. If you don't have something to write on, write on your hand and arm and, you know, up the shoulder and everything. This is so important because this is stuff you'll need to take with you, and there's quite a bit of content. And so the encouragement is to take notes. And I'm going to assume if you're not taking notes, you have photographic memory, and you'll be the one I come to to tell me everyone's name because I, I forget names. And so if you're not taking notes... Uh, I just assume you're going to capture all this for me. So is that a good assumption? Maybe not. Okay, okay. Okay, let's, let's hit the certainty part to begin with. Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. Paul is writing this to followers of Jesus. So once who have begun trusting Jesus, he's writing to them. He says, and remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ, by the way, the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, all the same. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. If the Spirit's not living in you, he's saying, then then you don't even know Jesus. You don't have life with Jesus. You've not really trusted Jesus. Because the implication then is, because if you've trusted Jesus, then the Holy Spirit lives within you. He does live within you. And Paul even goes on then, because there were probably some doubters, there were probably some doubters in the crowd he was writing to, in this church, and he goes on then and says, and, and Christ lives in you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he'll give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Here's this, this profound truth is, is if you have begun a life of trusting Jesus, then the Holy Spirit of God in all his fullness lives within you. And you need to know that. You need to be certain of that and, and, and assured of that. If you've read through the New Testament, in particular the book of Acts and then Paul's letters and, and beyond, um, I would suggest to you that maybe the church, there are a bunch of churches mentioned in, in the New Testament, I would suggest maybe the church that was doing the worst job following Jesus was the church in Corinth. You read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and, and you see all of the mess, and, and you think, they, they are, they're making such a mess of this life that's supposed to be good following Jesus. All of their sin, all of the junk, and to that church in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, to that church that wasn't doing things right, but he was writing to ones that had still trusted Jesus, he would say this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he would say, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? It was given to you by God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. They would understand terminology of temple was. The temple was where you would most experience the real presence of God. That was temple to them. He's saying, don't you get it? Your body is the temple. Your body is the 
temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. He was saying that to ones who had such junk and trash in their lives, yet they were followers of Jesus. And I bring that up because maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, not me, because I don't qualify. I'm not following well enough. I've, my sin is too deep and too dark, and my sins are too many. But, but if you've begun a life of authentically trusting Jesus, you have to know the Spirit of God lives in all fullness in you. You have to know that. You're, you're inhabited by God. Like he's, he's moved into your house. He's moved into your house. Now, if you're reading the New Testament, there are a couple of places in the book of Acts where, where there are a couple of exceptions where it appears that someone has trusted their life to Jesus, but the Holy Spirit doesn't move in right then. The Spirit moves in later. And I want to walk you through those. Acts chapter 8 is one of those, one of those examples, okay? And, and so this is the setting. Uh, this is after Jesus came, after he died on the cross, after he rose from the dead, after he appeared many times, after he ascended to heaven. This is after, after his ascension, Acts 2, God sends the Holy Spirit into Christ's followers for the first time, okay? Uh, and and it's, it's to mostly, it's primarily to, to Jews in Jerusalem primarily, some time passes, and now in Acts 8, some of the followers of Jesus have been scattered, and some go to the area of Samaria, um, Samaria, I'm sorry, Samaria, where the Samaritans are, and, and they begin to tell the Samaritans about Jesus, and some of them trust their life to Jesus. There's this authentic faith, but God doesn't send the Spirit to them then. And a little time passes, and Peter and John come from Jerusalem, and they come there, and they, they look at it, they see this is authentic faith, and then God sends the Holy Spirit upon, upon these people of Samaria then. And most biblical scholars think this is what was happening then. The Jewish people for centuries had been convinced that the people of Samaria had messed up life and theology so badly, they were beyond redemption. They thought this group of people could never be saved by God. And so when some Christ followers go there, of course, their beliefs weren't true about them being beyond redemption. Some Christ followers go there. They tell them about Jesus. They trust Jesus. If those Christ followers who were of no esteem in the church had come back to Jerusalem and say, hey, the, the people of Samaria, they've trusted Jesus. Man, they've begun this new life. They've been saved by Christ. There would likely have been great division among the church between Jerusalem and Samaria and so on. And so this is probably what was going on God takes the two biggest leaders of the church, Peter and John, and sends them there. And they confirm these people authentically have trusted Jesus. They have been redeemed. And when they can verify it, then God sends the Holy Spirit. Then Peter and John go back to Jerusalem and they say, hey, guess what happened to the people of Samaria? And, and, and Jerusalem embraces it. And there's so much division and everything that's been prevented by that. It, it's not, it was like, it was like Acts 8 was it was like the, the Pentecost when the Samaritans got the Holy Spirit was like Acts 2 when earlier the Jewish people in Jerusalem got the Holy Spirit. Okay? There were some people in Jerusalem on the day of Acts 2 that were followers of Jesus, but the Spirit did not live in them. But that was the day God chose to give the Spirit to those that were Jews in Jerusalem. And, and, and so that was the first Pentecost the Samaritans had theirs in Acts. Does that make any sense? It was a prevention. No, it doesn't. That was my best shot. I can't just keep. <laughs> sorry about that, guys. It, it was to prevent just all of the, the great division that likely would have happened. There's one more place I'll tell you about. It's in Acts 19. 
And it, it, it first begins to look like in the city of Ephesus that there's some followers of Jesus. But Paul shows up, and they've not received the Holy Spirit. And as it unfolds, it becomes clear that, that they weren't followers of Jesus after all. They had heard about John the Baptist who preceded Jesus. They'd heard about the baptism of John the Baptist, which was to repent because the Messiah is going to come. And they had had that baptism and that belief, and they had not really heard the full good news, the full gospel. So Paul tells them in Acts 19, and then the Spirit comes upon them. Okay? Those are the exceptions. I give you those because, because some of you are reading Scripture consistently. When you hit those, I want you to understand those exceptions. But here, here's the deal. If you've trusted Jesus, then the fullness of God's Spirit lives within you. Okay, let me talk some about the significance of this then. In Matthew eleven eleven, 11, uh, Jesus is, is, is in the midst of his ministry. So John the Baptist had preceded Jesus and had told the people, turn from your sins because the Messiah is coming. Get your heart ready, get your mind ready, get your life ready, the Messiah is coming. John had done that, and, and then Jesus begins his ministry. Then John gets arrested, gets thrown in prison. There's a, you know, mixed opinions about, jo- about John the Baptist. Uh, some say great, some say not so good. Look, the guy's in prison. And so that's what's happening. And then and so in Matthew eleven eleven, this is Jesus talking. He says, I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Okay, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. That would shock them. He was saying that, that Abraham, who was the father of the faith, wasn't greater than John the Baptist was. He was saying Moses, who was their icon and even our icon today of the Old Testament, the most prominent figure in the Old Testament, saying Moses wasn't, wasn't any greater than John the Baptist. I mean, his life didn't exceed John the Baptist's life, okay? And King David, the most revered king of all, no greater than John the Baptist. The prophets, Elijah, Isaiah, no greater than John the Baptist. It would shock them. There's this guy in prison. Jesus is saying, he's saying that, that of all who have ever lived, none is greater than this man, John the Baptist. And then he says, yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Even the very least person in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham and David, and on and on and on. So, so what does he mean about those in the kingdom of God? When, when John the Baptist began his ministry, this was key to what his message was. Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the significance of this kingdom of God. This is the significance of Jesus coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus picks this up after John has done his part. Actually, John gets his head cut off, and Jesus does his three years of ministry. Jesus then is crucified for all of our sins. He rises from the dead. For a 40-day window from the crucifixion, for 40 days, he appears from time to time to his followers. This is one of those times in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. This is near the very tail end before he ascends to heaven once and for all. And so it says, once when he, Jesus, was eating with them, He commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is saying, here's the significance of being in the kingdom of God. At the Holy Spirit, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? This is important to capture. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply but profoundly this. It's the Holy Spirit taking up permanent residence within a person. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit taking up permanent residence within the life of a person. It's, it's as simple as that and as profound as that. Okay? And, and so, again, someone trusts Jesus. They're, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence within them. And for every person that that's happened with, and all of you that are Christ followers here, it's true. All of you that aren't, if you become a Christ follower, it would become true. Jesus says you're far greater than Abraham. You're far greater than Moses, far greater than King David far greater than Elijah and Isaiah, and far greater than John the Baptist. For the least of the ones in the kingdom. You may be sitting there looking at your life and thinking, there's no way, and Jesus says, yes, there is, because there's something significant. Like God moved into your house. The Spirit of God, like the fullness of God, has taken up residence in your house, and that had never happened before. Old Testament times, this is Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit was given temporarily for a task. A lot of you have read the Old Testament a great deal. You'll see the, whole, the Holy Spirit mentioned many times. Every single time the Spirit's given, he, He's given temporarily for a specific task. I'll give you several examples of it. Uh, Numbers 11, 16, and 17. This is about Moses. Numbers 11, 16, and 17. And here's the deal. Moses is, they have... Um, They've crossed the sea that God has parted. They're in the wilderness now. Moses has about 3 million unruly, rebellious people. And he's the sole leader. Every single conflict comes to him. Can you picture that? Like, like take the city limits of Houston and every conflict, city limits of Houston come to you. You got to solve it. I mean, he was, he was on overload. And so that's what the setting is. And this, so the passage says, then the Lord said to Moses, gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders of Israel. Bring them to the tabernacle to stand there with you. I will come down and talk with you there. I will take some of the spirit that is upon you. In other words, God had given the Holy Spirit to Moses for a task. Lead these people. I'll take the spirit that's upon you, and I'll put the spirit upon them also. I will give them the spirit for a temporary time for a task, help you lead the people. They'll bear the burden of the people along with you so you'll not have to carry it out. Okay? But, but it wasn't the Spirit permanently taking up residence in full in Moses or the 70. I'll give you another one. This is about, about craftsmen in Exodus 31, 1 through 3. They're about to build the tabernacle, and God says, I'm going to put my Spirit upon some people to give them such giftedness and in, in creativity and in beauty and in, in construction. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I have specifically chosen... Uh, Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. Temporarily given for a task. God would give his Spirit to the judges, who were the leaders of Israel. Judges 3, 9 through 10. It says, when the people of God of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel at that time. The son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz, the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became Israel's judge. He went to war against King Cushan, Rishathaim of Aram, and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. Okay, the spirit temporarily for a task, lead my people. 
He gave his spirit to, to the kings often, in this case to Saul in 1 Samuel 10, 6. At that time, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, Saul, and you'll prophesy with these other people. You'll be, char- you'll be changed into a different person, given temporarily for a task. I'll give you one more. Given to the prophets often, temporarily for a task. Ezekiel 2, 1 through 3. Stand up, son of man, said the voice. I want to speak with you. The spirit came into me as he spoke. And he set me on my feet. I listened carefully to his words. Son of man, he said, I'm sending you to the nation of Israel, a rebellious nation that's rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been rebelling against me to this very day. For this task, that you be my spokesperson, but not a single one of them, not a single one of them had, had the Spirit of God take up residence within them. Not a single one of them did God move into their house in all of his power, in all of his knowledge, all of his wisdom, all of his love, all of his grace, not a single one of them. But every single Christ follower in this room, he's done that. He's done that. And every not yet Christ follower in this room, if you follow Jesus, begin to follow Jesus one day, he will move in in his entirety into your life, into, in, into your life in his full entirety. So, so this is, here's the difference. This is what makes... This is what gives someone the greater life than all of those. This baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Greek term for baptism that was used in Scripture originally means to to dip into or to immerse in. And the image that that the first readers would likely have would be of, of a big pot that might be filled with some purple dye. And the image of taking a white cloth and taking it and dipping it or immersing it in the purple dye. You would let it down with some tongs maybe into this purple dye and you'd maybe leave it for a few moments or a few minutes. You would bring it up and you would recognize that because it's been immersed in this dye, that, that the dye has been exposed to every fiber of the cloth. And not just exposed to it, but the dye is soaked into every fiber of the cloth. And, and now the cloth is no longer as it was. It's been changed by, by this immersion, this baptism into the dye. It's taken on the very color of the dye. It's been altered. It'll never be the same again because it's been immersed into this dye. That's what baptism would reflect to these other people in the first times it was written in red. And, and so this is what it would mean to us when the Holy Spirit moved into your life. It meant the fullness of God in intimate contact with every fiber of your being. And that remains to this day. It meant the fullness of God and intimate contact with every fiber of your being, the fullness of God, which means the God who has all knowledge moved in, in intimate connection, with all wisdom moved in, with all righteousness moved in, with all love and grace and truth and on and on and all power moved in. We just, a few minutes ago, sang this song, same power, same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Same power that calls the dead to life. Same power that moves mountains. Same power that calms this raging sea has moved into our lives. The fullness, the fullness of God in intimate contact with every fiber of your being. Intimate contact with your, every fiber of your heart and mind and soul. Intimate contact, the fullness of God, intimate contact into every fiber of your emotional world and thinking world and and willful choosing world. I mean, the fullness of God in this, this 
intimacy into every fiber of who you are. As I've been pondering that, I'm not surprised what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and 18 to Christ's followers. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. If you, if you know, if you know with certainty, if you're a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit lives within you. If you know the significance of it is, is that the fullness of God is, is in intimate contact with every fiber of your being, then for the five weeks ahead, as we begin to look at category after category where God wants to change and transform us, we'll begin to understand no one in this room, no one in this room begins to grasp the fullness of potential of change in their life. No one in this room, I don't care how mature you are, none of us have begun to fully grasp the potential with, with the fullness of God living within us. Those of you not yet Christ followers, you need to understand, if you become a Christ follower, you need to understand what could happen. I mean, the significance of what would happen with God living in intimacy. If he moves into your house, that kind of closes every fiber of your being. The next five weeks, we'll begin to look at, at these segments of our life, aspects of our life that the Holy Spirit has the heart and the desire and the capacity and the ability to change and transform within us week after week after week. The verses that I read about John the Baptist saying, I baptize with water, uh, yet this one that comes will baptize in the Spirit. Jesus would say there was baptism of water, baptism in the Spirit. Well, baptism of water, though, I'm going to shift gears with you just for a moment. Baptism of water didn't end with John the Baptist because Jesus picks it up again. At the very end of his ministry, he's already risen from the dead. He picks it up again in Matthew 28, 19. Matthew 28, 19, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. In other words, bring people to the point of trusting their lives to me. That's what it is to be a disciple, become a follower of Jesus, make disciples of all the nations, then baptizing them when they trust Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, which is water baptism. It is water baptism. And so Jesus' picture of how he would intend things to unfold would be that a person comes to a point where they, they begin a life trusting Jesus. And, and they would understand, or at least soon after understand, that in that moment, they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. The full Spirit of God, the fullness of God, moves into their house, and, and there's, this, there's this intimate connection to every fiber. That happens instantly. But then Jesus says, Jesus says, after you've become a follower, after you've trusted me, then the intention would be, then you would, you would have this water baptism. And the whole purpose of water baptism, biblically, is, is it's this outward sign and symbol of what's already happened in someone's life, of what's already begun in someone's life, okay? Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, last week, we had newcomer's lunch, and I met a man who, who just eight days before had, had begun a life trusting Jesus, and so that meant eight days before, the Holy Spirit had moved into him in all fullness. And some, some people, you can't tell, like the first eight days, this man you could tell. Uh, I described him to someone already this week, to uh, some staff. He was a 500-watt light bulb. Uh, not a 50-watt bulb, a 500-watt light bulb. I mean, the Holy Spirit moved into him in that instant, as the Holy Spirit does with every person the instant they trust. 
But then Jesus says, after you begin to trust, he says, have this water baptism because it's going to show, it's going to reflect to the watching people, maybe to friends and the church and family and strangers. It's going to show and reflect what's already happened inside of you. And so in water baptism, here's the symbolism of it. One is this, is there's a symbolism of being washed. Water washes dirt away, doesn't it? And to be washed means that I'm forgiven. Like my sins were washed away by Jesus. I mean, to be washed. And so when someone goes into the water, then there's this image of being washed or being forgiven. The second is this image of, of uh, you've died to the old life and you're raised to a new life. You've died to the old life. In other words, Scripture talks about, about uh, being buried in baptism when someone's lowered beneath the water surface. The image is you've already died to the old life. It happened when you trusted Jesus. And now when you come up out of the water, you've been raised to this new life, which has already happened. It's just this visual of what's already happened. And then finally is to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. There's this visual of someone being immersed in water that's this reminder, this outward picture of the reality that's already happened. Is This person has been immersed in the Holy Spirit, been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit lives in them in all fullness in the deepest intimacy imagined. So uh, that, that's a, a prep because a lot of you are, are fairly new to FCC. And at FCC, we're about to do a baptism. We do a, a once-a-year church-wide baptism. Um, and so I, as I was talking about the baptism of the Spirit, I thought I need to connect with you just water baptism as well. And so there are a number of you in this room who are you're followers of Jesus. But since you began to follow, you've not been baptized. And as we would read Scripture, then God's command would be to be baptized and just reflect to a watching world what's already happened, what's already reality for you to be baptized. Some of you maybe were baptized as an infant or as a child or a teenager or some prior time, but you were not trusting your life to Jesus then, but now you are. And so water baptism for you, that's, that's the next step to reflect what's already happened within you. We do a church-wide baptism for this reason. Uh, because baptism is reflecting what already happened inside. When we first launched the church, uh, we were reading Luke 15. And in Luke 15, Jesus is telling some stories about something that's very valuable that's lost, and then it's found. And he first tells about this sheep that's very valuable, and there's this great search that goes on, and the sheep is found, and, and then there's this big party thrown, and then he throws in, oh, by the way, Every time someone begins to follow me, there's a party that explodes across all of heaven. And then he tells about this coin that's very valuable. It gets lost, and there's this great search, and the, the coin is found, and, and they're so happy they found the coin. They throw this big party. And he says, oh, by the way, every time someone begins to follow Jesus, there's a party that explodes all across heaven. And then he tells this story about this son, this deeply loved son that gets so lost and wayward and finally the son finds his way home back to the father and there's this massive party and the picture again although he doesn't say it the third time the picture is hey every time someone trusts jesus in on that day heaven exploded with a party and so we were thinking well if if what we're doing with water is just a symbol of what already happened why don't we have a big party among the church and guests and friends and strangers and just just have a party of celebration and give our best imitation, although far short, of the party that exploded in heaven. And so two weeks from today, May 1st, 5 p.m., 7 p.m., we'll do this church-wide baptism. 
And, and all are invited, uh, all that are part of the church, all that are guests or friends. Key, key is this. Those of you that are adults, those of you that are beyond high school, key is this. If you're one who has trusted Jesus, not been baptized since, then, then this is your time. And there are two things you would have to do to be baptized. One, you have to hear this message. And so if you were asleep, it doesn't count. You have to listen to it on audio. But you've heard the message, and then there's a baptism form in the program, and you'll have to fill that out. We'll give you a minute or two in just a moment to do it and put it in the offering basket, but you have to fill it out. And then you're squared away to be baptized in two weeks then. And uh, we'll send you information, details, and all that stuff in. If you are a junior high or high school student, okay, that doesn't work for you. You have to contact student ministry. Junior high, high school, contact student ministry. If, if there's a child um, under junior high age, uh, first parents, we, we don't baptize children under the age of eight because we believe baptism is, is authentic faith of the person, and, and under that age, it's just hard for anyone to really determine. We actually urge parents, we recommend that parents have their children wait till they're teenagers, 13, 14 at least, for this reason. Initially, often, the child just simply adopts their parents' faith. It's not theirs yet. They should adopt the parents' faith, but sometime along the way, they have to adopt it for themselves. And, and only God knows exactly when that happens, um, and often the person will know that. Um, but, but there's a better chance that it's become their faith uh, the older they get. By the chan- time they're a teenager, much better chance. So, so we recommend waiting, but you as the parent can override that. Eight and up, we can baptize in. So if it's a child beneath junior high, you have to contact children's ministry. Okay? Makes sense? So we're going to have this, this celebration. Uh, a couple things, and I'm going to wrap up for you. Um, in the moment that's about to unfold, uh, you'll need pens if you're going to be baptized to fill out that form. On, on the floor level, at the very left end of each aisle, there's a can with pens. If you're on that end of the aisle, would you reach for grab the can of pens and then begin to pass it down for those who need a pen? Okay, if you're in the risers, uh, the pins are in the middle, and I think about every other step has pins on it. You guys can, in the middle, reach for those as well, pass them around. And, and so I'm going to give you a moment to fill those out, the offering to come in a minute. But, but, but here's the deal. Okay, here's the deal. This is stunning wonder that if you've trusted Jesus, you are not on your own. You're not living this by yourself. Nothing less than the fullness of God in the Holy Spirit in, in intimate contact with every fiber of your being and your life. That's baptism of the Holy Spirit. And water baptism simply reflects that profound truth. Let me pray, and then you guys can take a couple minutes, and then Dana's going to come up and, and provide a closing for us. Father, I pray, Father, that uh, wherever someone's at, they would have a grasp, they would have a grasp of, of certainty that whenever someone begins trusting Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes up residence. The Holy Spirit moves in. And they would understand more of the significance of it, at least a measure more, that, that this, is, this is your fullness, power and knowledge and wisdom and righteousness and uh, love and grace and truth, all of that in intimate contact with every fiber of one's being. And may we then come back next week and the weeks that follow with anticipation of how we can live in such proximity and be changed in aspect after aspect of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.